In this episode, we talk about how you can reframe the day. Get excited, because this is Tiny Leaps, Big Changes. Welcome to another episode of Tiny Leaps, Big Changes, where I share simple strategies you can use to get more out of your life. My name is Greg Clunas, and in this episode, uh, or rather in this two-part interview series with Adam Lowenstein, we are discussing the process of reframing the day, how to uh, focus in on the small things you can do each day in order to create actual change and to improve your life. Now, my guest is Adam Lowenstein. Adam is a former speechwriter and strategic communications director at the United States Senate, and he is the author of the book Reframe the Day, Embracing the Craft of Life One Day at a Time. And in this conversation, we go through a lot of different topics, things that... uh, I think ultimately you'll find incredibly valuable uh, when it comes to your own personal development, but really focus on the mindset, focus on the mentality of creating change. So one of the big things we talk about is, uh, of course, what it's like working in the political world and what the connections between politics and our personal development are like. How are those two worlds similar? Uh, We talk about why he focuses on the individual day rather than on the life. So why does he say to reframe the day rather than to change your life? We talk about why he believes that you can change your life dramatically without actually changing your life and what that actually means. And then, of course, we dive into the process. How do we actually create stillness in our day-to-day lives? How do we reduce the amount of time we spend rushing? We talk about meditation and his meditation practice and how to develop your own meditation practice. And we talk about a number of other topics that you will get massive, massive value out of. Now, as always, this is a two-part interview series, so be sure to listen to this one here as well as the next episode to get the full context on this conversation. Now, we're going to jump into this conversation here in a second, but first, let's take a look at today's sponsor. Support for this episode comes from Manscaped. If you haven't heard of Manscaped, they are the best in men's below-the-belt grooming. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools for your family jewels. They obsess over their technology developments to provide you the best tools for your grooming experience. Now, as a guy who has tried a lot of different ways to keep my downstairs area groomed and healthy, it pretty much has always been an awful experience. From hair removal creams that burn your more sensitive sensitive areas to all the nicks and cuts that come from basically every razor out there. I've dealt with it all. So when I first heard about Manscaped and their innovative skin safe technology, I was honestly a little skeptical, but I decided to try it anyway. And their Lawnmower 3 product is literally, literally the best downstairs shaving experience I've ever had. Their third-generation trimmer features a cutting-edge ceramic blade to reduce manscaping accidents. To put that simply, millions of balls are about to be nick-free thanks to Manscaped's advanced skin-safe technology. With this product, manscaping accidents are finally a thing of the past. And one of the coolest features is the LED light, which illuminates grooming areas for a closer and more precise trimming. 
But don't just take my word for it. Try it out for yourself. Pick up a Lawnmower 3 today for yourself or for your partner and get 20% off plus free shipping by using the code TINYLEAPS at manscaped.com. That's www.manscaped.com. Go to manscaped.com and use the code TINYLEAPS for 20% off plus free shipping. Adam, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Greg. So your book is called Reframe the Day. Um, I've gone through probably the first half of it, first uh, few uh, hundred or so pages. And there's a lot that I want to discuss today. But could you start out by just sort of breaking down for us uh, the purpose of this book, why somebody should be interested in it, and why you wrote it in the first place? Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks for having me. And I'm excited to talk about this book. I think it's it's particularly relevant for the moment that we're in right now. So this book came from just me needing a way to process what was going on in my brain. I think like a lot of writers, I write to figure out what I think and to process my thoughts. And I'd spent eight years working in politics in the US, primarily in Washington, DC, and moved to the UK about two and a half years ago um, with my partner, Erin, when she was studying um, at Oxford. And I got here, and for the first time in my life, in my professional life at least, I wasn't working head down in politics with the news following me 24-7, and I actually had a chance to step back and think about what I'd done in politics and, and what mattered to me. And I kept experiencing these little moments of stillness of fulfillment of contentment where I just felt very much at peace in a way that I hadn't in when I was working in the political world and I started an iPhone note which became a series of blog posts which eventually became reframe the day to try to figure out where these moments were coming from what was I doing in my life that was creating them what was I doing in my life that was preventing more of them from happening and a series of um, explorations and reflections became the book that is reframe the day. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So you worked in politics uh, for eight years. You sort of write this book from that lens where you are taking a very political, uh, almost like a political analyst approach to our individual days and our relationship to productivity and busyness and stillness and so on and so forth. Uh, what in your mind is the relationship between politics and personal development um, and for someone who maybe doesn't see that relationship as clearly, why, I guess ultimately what I'm asking is why are you quote unquote qualified to write about personal development? That's a great question. And I think it's something that every writer wonders about, which is, you know, it's the, the classic imposter syndrome. Why, why would anyone want to read this? What do I have to bring to this conversation? And, you know, I was somebody who for, the first 10 years of my professional career was just focused on working all the time and thinking that all I needed to be happy and fulfilled was to produce more and to work more and to find more time to work. And, you know, I devoured life hack um, related content and productivity blogs thinking that, you know, if I found 17 ways to find, to squeeze more minutes out of every day, I would find time to be happy and fulfilled and would be able to do it all. And then at that point I could rest and find presence and happiness there. And so I was on this constant whirlwind combined with working in politics, which is a very much a 
a world that's obsessed with striving, you know, for the next election, for the next achievement, for the next promotion as a political staffer, which is what I was for eight years. You're always thinking about, you know, what's going to happen to my boss, what's going to happen to the causes I believe in. Um, so you're always thinking short term. And at the same time, you know, your world can change overnight in an election, in a scandal, as we are all finding right now in a global pandemic. So it's an uncertain world full of constant distractions um, and really focused on striving. And that combined with my, uh, my focus on being busy and productive all the time just made me absolutely exhausted. So I was consuming all of this content and trying to figure out how to fit more into every single day. And I think what makes me qualified to write about it is that I took a step back from it all. Um, I was very lucky to find myself in the UK away from politics and with some time to reflect and start writing about it and found myself in a very much um, a place of, you know, it wasn't a radical change. It wasn't night and day, but it was a noticeably more fulfilled and present life that I was leading. And I'm not making any claims in this book to be offering radical solutions or solutions at all. These are very much, I call this book a tool for self-reflection because so much of what I cite in the book, um, in addition to my own experiences, is work of other writers and creators whose work has been valuable to me and that I have read what they've done, reflected on it, and tried to apply it to my own life. And my hope is that some of the ideas in this book, um, you know, they're not going to solve anything for anybody. Uh, but I think we should be wary of anyone, whether it's a personal development guru or a politician who is promising to solve anything, um, especially overnight. Uh, but what I hope people can take from this book is a reflection of their own experiences and some little tips and ideas and tactics here and there to, to nudge each day in a slightly more fulfilling direction. Yeah, you talk a lot, um, both in the book and on your website about uh, essentially everyone having the power to change their life without changing their life. Could you expand a little bit on what that means? Yeah, and I think it ties a little bit into what I was saying previously about seeking to improve our lives, um, thinking that all we need to be happy and content is to find the right life hack or to achieve the right promotion or to meet the perfect person and then happiness will follow thereafter. Um, I think that's what a lot of the personal development space promises explicitly or implicitly. Um, it's certainly, you know, and here's another connection to the political world, it's certainly what a lot of politicians promise is that this next election, you know, you'll be happy and you'll have the perfect job and all you need to do is vote for me and then the rest will follow from there. Um, and so with this book, I was really trying to push back on that idea. Yeah. So um, you touched on this a little bit earlier, and uh, I, I believe you have an entire chapter on it in the book. Um, this idea of the really, excuse me, the relationship between busyness and productivity, but you actually take it a step further because in personal development, as many of my listeners are aware, and I'm sure you've seen as well, um, people tend to already talk about, oh, the goal isn't to be busy, it's to be productive. You actually go a step further and say, well, the goal isn't even to be productive. Being productive is a measurement that is suitable for computers and humans are not computers. Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that, that concept of busyness, productivity, and what we should actually be striving for. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, the movement to fight against this constant busyness, I think, is very much a positive one. And like you said, I just try to take it a step further and fight back or 
press against this notion that what makes human beings worthwhile is how much we produce. And I think the reason I find I struggle with this notion of productivity so much is precisely the phrasing of, of how much, because if we measure ourselves by how much we produce, then there is never a point when it finishes, you know, then more is always better. And I think, you know, this derives a lot of, um, you know, we could, we could get deep into the tie between productivity and capitalism, because in a capitalistic society, you know, what creates growth is productivity. And the more that workers and companies and participants in a market are producing, then the more valuable they are. Um, but just on an individual human level, we measure our self-worth in so many instances by how much we produce, you know, whether it's how many emails we sent or how many project plans we develop or how many this or that we create. And none of that necessarily reflects any sort of activity that creates value in our own lives. It might create what our employer is asking us to do, but it's not necessarily giving us a sense of fulfillment or contentment. And we think and are trained to think that all we are missing then, the reason we're not getting that fulfillment is because we're not doing enough of it. And so the solution then is to do more, which means we need to work more, which means we need to find more time in our days to work more, which means sleep less and spend less time with our families and spend less time with our kids and spend less time reading good books for you know, the, the sake of wanting to read a good story. All of these things get sacrificed at the altar of productivity. And I think because we have such a tough time measuring productivity, especially for people who are working in some sort of information or knowledge-related space, because it's so hard to measure, we use a proxy measure of busyness instead. And we look at our calendar, and if it's full from morning till night, then we say, wow, I'm super busy, I'm exhausted all the time, I must be doing something valuable. And we measure our own self-worth by how busy we are, how much we think we're producing without ever taking a step back to think, does any of this make me happy? Does any of this fulfill me? Does any of this lead me towards something that I really believe in? Or is this just something that I'm doing because I've been taught to measure my self-worth based on it? Where where does that teaching come from? The notion of productivity as a measure of self-worth? Yeah. That's a great question. And it's probably, it's definitely beyond the scope of this particular book. I think it probably comes right, from right. a a number of different sources and and part of it is the you know it it ties innately into this notion that what makes an individual valuable in a market-based society is how much they produce and you know that's that's not necessarily wrong in in every circumstance but as a measure of building a fulfilling life i it seems like something that has moved from a market context into a human context in a way that it just doesn't really fit. Um, and, you know, part of the reason I think that we are so focused on productivity is because it's much easier to fill our days with meetings and emails and to-dos and incoming information than it is to sometimes wrestle with some of the bigger questions that, you know, do I enjoy what I'm doing? Do I, am I happy where I am? Do I feel like I'm making progress towards a goal that I really care about? Um, or do I need to make a hard decision to leave this job or move to a different place or um, you know, meet different people? These are hard questions to wrestle with. And it's a lot easier, I think, and I'm 
guilty of this as, as anyone, to fill our days with um, future-oriented tasks and to-dos and goals uh, that take us out of the present and, you know, keep us moving towards that future finish line. But of course, the finish line itself is moving at the same time. So that's a that's a great uh, transition to a question that I had. Something you said in the book really jumped out at me. Um, and I'm going to paraphrase it a little bit here. But you said something along the lines of think about how little time you spend thinking. Um, and this is something that it was in a chapter called Create Stillness. And it's something that I've thought about for a while now, probably ever since I started this show, just this relationship that humans have to their own thoughts. We seem to be, we seem to sort of be afraid of thinking. We seem to be afraid of spending time alone with ourselves. Um, and you're, you're by no means a, a psychologist or, or anyone in the mental health space, but I'd love to hear just your, your thoughts on are we afraid of thinking? Are we afraid of, of that quiet time with ourselves? Are we afraid of asking those questions to ourselves? Like, why is that so difficult? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. And I think one of the things that's important to state up front is that all of the ideas I talk about in this book, I very intentionally call them practices and not solutions or lessons or anything like that, because they're not things that we just do one day, we didn't do them yesterday, we do them today and all is solved. And from my own experience, um, they are practices that I have not even close to perfected. I wrote a new forward that I published on Medium a few weeks ago to accompany the release of the book. When I went through basically every chapter and said, here's where I'm coming up short in actually living the practices that I write about in the book. So I should say upfront that in particular on this topic of finding, making time to think, not finding time to think, I should be clear there, carving out space to think, being with our own thoughts and not filling our every waking moment with incoming information and distractions and busyness and tasks. I am as much struggling with this as anyone else is. Um, so with that enormous caveat, I think yes to your question of, you know, why we don't make this time. Being bored is boring. It's scary. Uncomfortable thoughts can surface. Um, I think part of it, and one thing I struggle with, and I talk about in one of the other chapters about consuming content and wanting to consume all of the books and podcasts and movies and interviews and audiobooks and long form articles that exist because there's so much interesting information out in the world. Um, it's, you know, I'm inclined to want to spend every waking moment consuming some of it. Um, part of it is that I think, and this ties into this conversation about busyness and productivity, I think we are especially, we have trained ourselves and have been trained to see any moment when we're not working, producing something as a moment when we are slacking. And, you know, this manifests in things like a Skype window or a Slack channel where if you're not commenting or seen as online, then you must not be working. It ties into this current moment where a lot of people are working from home and finding some discomfort and trying to prove that they are actually working and valuable employees because so much of that, um, you know, they conveyed by just physically being present in an office. So I think it ties into all of this. There's a lot of interesting information. Being bored, which is so valuable and so necessary, is also boring. Sometimes these uncomfortable thoughts surface and it's a lot easier to push them down and fill that with something else that's more manageable. And, you know, there's this 
expectation that we will be busy every moment, and it's a self-imposed expectation, and it's a societal expectation. And we see, and I very much include myself in this, I see every down moment, even when I know I need it and I just need time to process, I see that as slacking or as, um, you know, I feel guilty for not working. And um, there's a great article by BuzzFeed News journalist Anne Helen Peterson about millennial burnout that was published, I think, January of 2019. Um, and she, and I'm paraphrasing here, but she talks about, you know, why do I feel so exhausted and burned out all the time? It's because I've been trained to see, you know, work all the time as the determinant of my self-worth. Why do I feel guilty all the time? It's because I'm expected and I both a self-imposed expectation and a societal expectation that I will be working all the time. And all of these factors together make it really, really tough to find even a moment of, uh, you know, of stillness just to process the world and let our thoughts congeal and let some ideas be sparked so I I want to talk about stillness, uh, but you made a distinction at the beginning there that I would love to to expand on just a little bit. Um, the distinction, and I hear this in basically every interview, and this is why I'm pointing it out because I want my listeners to recognize that this is popping up over and over again. This distinction between finding time versus making time. Why is that important? Why is it important to recognize that it's about making time, not finding it? I would say it's there for two reasons, and I think it is a really important distinction, and it's one that I don't always make, and so when I am conscious of it, I try to really double down on that. Um, first, there's so few things in life that are in our control, and one of the underlying premises of Reframe the Day is to focus on the two things that we always do control, which is how we perceive the world around us and how we spend our time. And we don't control all of that, but we can control a little of it. And we can find a lot of fulfillment and agency and peace and presence in focusing on what we do control and trying to let go as best as possible, easier said than done always, of the things that we don't control. So the first reason that I distinguish between finding stillness and you know making time for it is that making time for it gives the agency to the individual. It says you are choosing to make this a priority. And the second reason is that if you don't do that, it's not going to get done. I think that's just the reality for the world that we live in and the lives that many of us lead. And if you needed a proof point for that, just think about how many people in the midst of the coronavirus crisis are feeling exhausted and overwhelmed. And it's not just because people are busy all the time. And to be very clear, a lot of people right now are busy all the time because they're doing incredibly important work, whether it's in food service or working in healthcare, or working at a hospital, you know, EMS, there's so many reasons that people are exhausted. And so that's a very different type of busyness than what you and I are talking about here. Um, but whatever our circumstances are, this time is not going to exist. We're not going to find it on our own. No one is going to schedule it for us. We have to be very proactive in carving out time for it because otherwise it's just not going to happen. All right, that's it for part one of my conversation with Adam Lowenstein. Be sure to click subscribe wherever you're tuning in and be sure to connect with Adam directly. I've got his website linked up in the description of this episode. Now, you're going to want to make sure you listen to part two because in part two, we are covering a number of topics that uh, were cut out of this one, but ridiculously, ridiculously valuable. Things like the changes you can make today that can start to reframe your 
today how you can start this process of building stillness, building focus, and building fulfillment into each of your days. So you're going to want to tune into part two, which is publishing next. So be sure to tune into the next episode of Tiny Leaps, Big Changes. And with all of that said, thank you so much for being here. I've been Greg Clunas. And remember that all big changes come from the tiny leaps you take every day. Every day.